The Witch Doctor presents Lilith Origins Dark Passenger, a limited run podcast micro series set within the Fallen Cycle mythos. But first, a few words. Welcome back, listeners. The Witch Doctor is currently on a break while we develop and fine tune the second season. The first nine episodes are available at witchdoctor.xyz, and as always, you can follow my progress and find all the links at equanimousrex.com. In this micro-series, we bring you another installment in the Fallen Cycle Mythos, an exclusive reading of Lilith Origins Dark Passenger. This story can stand on its own, but if you're wondering how it ties together with everything else we've been doing here... I recommend you check out Party at the World's End, a novel written by James Curcio. You can find more information about Party at the World's End on FallenCycle.com along with all other Fallen Cycle projects. This episode contains adult themes, disturbing imagery, rampant megalomania, unreliable narrators, and the spiral of violence that accompanies the dehumanization of others when coupled with mad, amoral science, and even worse the realm of ideas. Listener discretion is advised. Written by James Curcio. The music in this episode was created by James Curcio, P. Emerson Williams, Scott Landis, Sean Mars, and Johan S. And now, the show. Lilith Origins, Dark Passenger. Beginnings. My name is Will Fisher, Dr. William Fisher. I once believed I would change the face of the future with my work. I imagine that part is still true. But we should be careful what we wish for. My name was quickly excised from the popular narrative, rendered inert, deposed, disgraced, barred from working again. At the time, this aspect of my research seemed too much of a risk to pen until I demonstrated results. Nevertheless, I would attempt to present events in the order they occurred, to the best of my recollection. Liliana Oswald was brought under my care nearly ten years ago. Seems like yesterday. May as well be a lifetime. The first day in particular is vivid. We professionals call it a screen memory. Brief moments. All the pieces that construct the scene. The rain falling, the gurgle of the trains. The echoing report of nurses' footfalls in the hallway, leading some patients in my way for evaluation. These are as clear in my recollection now as the day they happened. But memory can't be trusted. This must have been a rainy Wednesday afternoon, just like the last and the one before that. A thin layer of fog and indecisive storm clouds shrouding the asylum grounds. The yard was a small spot of verdant green and a grim bulwark of stone and concrete, struggling to drink in so much rain. The soupy runoff drained beneath the window of my study, an unnerving sound like an endless death rattle. Every time it rained, it sounded like someone was drowning slow in the gutter out back. This building followed the Kirkbride model, save minor eccentricities like the enclosed courtyard. The outside was ornate, almost second empire architecture, but with the exception of the administrative offices, the internal structure showed how tired this building truly was. Weighed down by long years and poor company. My office was in the westernmost point of that central administration building, flanked by symmetrical pavilions, housing patients, swept back like a flock of birds in flight, 
Outside my office, I imagine the shadow of a far-off fairy gliding towards this stony scene, riding low in the skookle, its bowels full of the deranged. Soon, it would disgorge itself on the shore. I couldn't have possibly foreseen what a turning point in my career this day would be. I thought little of it at the time. My mind was fixated on my dead-end neurosomatic research. I must have been so frustrated I could barely see the papers in front of me. The dingy chalkboard, covered with notes. The fetuses of various animals dreaming of nothing and formaldehyde wounds. Legitimate theories, and yet seemingly futile. That is, until I met her. It will take time to relay everything we learned together. I can say this much at the outset, supposing I'm not able to finish. I don't entirely want to tell the story, but I believe you'll see I had no choice once I discovered they were rebuilding over the site of our failure. The past has its revenge on us again. Also, I'm dying. This is a simplistic metaphor, but imagine that each day we swim through the electromagnetic spectrum like fish in water, and most of us are equally oblivious to its presence. But when properly focused and transmitted, one strong, well-trained mind can, will, soon be able to affect every nervous system on the planet, transmuting fiction into fact, sickness into health. Analysts will be able to perform psychiatric work from afar, not a patient at a time, but instead hundreds of thousands, even millions at a time. Some of my more conservative colleagues have been alarmed by the so-called ethical challenges posed by my experiments, so this journal is also intended to refute their erroneous thinking. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Fisher may overshadow names such as Adler, Jung, and even Freud in the psychiatric textbooks of the future. I believe in the future my devices will be able to be mass-produced. I called it Project Daedalus, named in deference to my dead wife and her fondness for pagan fairy tales. But in truth, as you'll see, this was nothing short of a Promethean venture. Look not towards Dr. Frankenstein when you seek my failing, but instead towards ancient Crete, for Daedalus and his son Icarus built that labyrinth as surely as I built the vault that now holds her shuffling bones. So she remains, never to escape. For whatever malice seeks to shatter those walls can't and will never find their way back to our world. Only a pale reflection remains. And what power does a reflection hold over reality? It is the price of science I've paid, for all great science also births abominations. I accept the cost of my endeavors. Dr. Fisher Footsteps in the hall. The footsteps in the hallway resolved into the three forms that stood idly on my doorstep. Nurse Smythe and two young ladies, gifted with a kind of comely waifishness that would likely bloom into a coarse sort of appeal. I looked them over and immediately jogged down a note. Lowborn. Sexual hysteria. This led to a peremptory initial evaluation. At first, there seemed nothing unusual or particularly interesting about Liliana's case. She presented as a neurotic, though neither histrionic nor psychotic, 
young girl with what I'd describe as an unhealthily overdeveloped imagination. This was clearly compensation for a challenging home life and the isolation of what I found to be a powerful but undisciplined mind. Her sister seems subject to similar flights of fancy. I understand that by signing this document you're making your sister a ward of the state? I asked. At the same time filing away a small curiosity, she bore the same name I'd given my late daughter. She did not look very much like my little Liliana, however. This was a distraction. I turned my attention back to the pair in time to see Liliana's sister nodding, a concerned look on her face. I don't know what else to do. What do you mean by that? I asked. I started to wonder if perhaps the sister was the more disturbed of the pair. She was the one signing the paperwork, so it was a moot point. But it was still clinically relevant to determine if she was projecting. Things have been happening said, vaguely. I put my pen down and gave them both a pained look. Liliana was clutching a stuffed animal to her chest so tightly that her hands were beginning to turn white, her breathing rapid. I imagined if we checked her pulse, it would be tachycardic. Can you elaborate? I asked, when a prolonged pause didn't serve as a sufficient prompt. I'd rather not, sir. Just things moving around, not where they should be. Or seeing things, not real things. I believe I frowned in response. Normally, family members were eager to get this sort of thing off their chest. Confiding can itself be vastly therapeutic, but she was too afraid to speak. I looked back at Liliana. Can you tell me why you think you're here? I asked, switching gears. A change washed over her features. The mouse transformed into a peregrine falcon, a wicked, remote, and yet sharp glint overtook her eyes a hint of a toothy smile. A moment later, I wondered if I'd seen it at all. She stroked her threadbare rabbit doll. Her sister signed the required paperwork and rushed out the door, leaving me to contemplate the fragile creature before me. I made another note. Check for personality schism, before motioning for an orderly to take her to her new home. Patient intake was a distraction from my real work, so I was barely present. I'd done this so many times that it hardly required my full attention. Over 1,000 patients had been admitted in the decade I served as chief analyst. I sized them up with a glance. Even the cadence of their footfalls told me. An inward turned neurotic, frightened princess that would likely marry above her station. And of course the nurse, I will openly admit now I was having a brief affair with him at the time. Three pairs of footsteps to my ears, but I was mistaken. This was the first time that I've overlooked something critical during an intake. In reality, there were four pairs of footsteps in that hall. Liliana carried a dark passenger inside her, a doppelganger, and she was hungry. The shadow beside me. The first sign of my error came a week later. Several patients claimed that Liliana had appeared in their cell as they tried to sleep, which at the time seemed impossible. It was not uncommon to hear all manner of stories in that place, but the fact that they correlated was unusual. I had her brought into my study, as I wanted her to feel at ease. Before I could ask her the normal questions, do you know what year it is? Do you remember your name? She asked me, where's the tea? Looking around for what clearly should be there, but wasn't. Some analysts at the Institute are afraid to let patients run sessions. They say it risks upending the power structure. I beg to differ. Tea, you say? I suppose I could make an exception for you if you'll do something for me. 
I bade one of the nurses make me my favorite Ceylon, and one for her as well. Extra sweet to master laudanum. The voice speaks to me. That's... that's why I'm here, isn't it? She asked. Can you tell me about this... friend? If you're not she, then I don't see why I should tell you. This put me at a crucial impasse. Would it be better to play a role in her fantasy and risk projection? Or play the outsider and risk being shut out from her fantasy world? I've never been one to shy away from risk in the name of the higher good. You found me out, I said. Please tell me. You can, you can trust me. I know her quite well. At this, her eyes lit up. Her name is Lilith. She stared over my shoulder as she spoke. I turned and saw that she was speaking to her reflection in the mirror. My hunch about a personality fracture was correct. As per my recollection, this was my final visit before our relationship took a drastic turn. I think it was the face she'd made during intake that made me take a second look. I might have missed it. How many fallen stars might be wandering out there in the darkness of the world, undiscovered, not even aware of their own hidden nature? From these early sessions, it became apparent that her imaginary world was as real to her, if not more real, than our own and it existed for her literally superimposed on the world around her. Like many schizophrenics, her fantasy world maintained a surprising internal consistency, although she did not initially present with typical schizophrenic symptoms. In this inner world, she claimed, there was only what she called her timeless other. But inner cosmology was really of no concern to me. I updated my diagnosis and treatment regimen and had her start drawing. This inner world revealed a certain recursiveness, the cracked mirror held up to M.C. Escher's artistic vision. I have a unique talent for assembling details, from parts to whole, but often in life we don't get a picture beforehand of the puzzle we're assembling. Anyhow, on some level, I must have realized that her imaginary world was more than just an unusual fantasy. It's common enough to see fantasy as a means for internal projections. In all our narratives, we portray more of ourselves in the world. Psychological disturbance is an exaggeration of healthy processes. Pathology still follows the demands of morphology. But the reports were adding up, from patients and staff alike, this was more akin to an actual psychic ability, though possessed by an inarguably disturbed individual. A few weeks later, I called out to an orderly, bring me that Oswald girl. The wheels on the gurney spun in lazy circles as he brought her to me, like a ship appearing from some distant shore. Of course, she had merely arrived from patient housing, a series of cubicle-like rooms with barred doors, a single toilet, and walls coated with intricate patterns of mold and fungus. The conditions were spartan, there was no denying that. But I've come to find that when the building itself was the stick, then I could offer patients a carrot with a mere smile and a curiously strong cup of tea. A moment's reprieve from the dank in the dark, a little food that doesn't taste of corpses, like getting a rat to push a button. Her eyes seemed slightly more sunken than last, her cheeks more sallow. She was leaving her porridge bowl untouched on the tray each morning. A thick, crusty morass in its best condition, I admit, but when you're hungry, anything should taste good. Are you hungry? She shook her head no. I'm sorry to hear that, I said, responding to her stubbornness with impassive, brusque kindness. How do you like the other patients here? They're mean, she said. I smiled and put my hand on her cheek. She jumped. You'll be happy to hear that we're going to relocate you. You'll be moved to the East Wing after you've gone through reassignment to a little contraption I call the Pit of Despair. 
I know, I know. It sounds ghastly. It's really just a little joke, though. Our little joke. You and I. She scrunched her eyebrows, trying to follow. It gets boring in the ward. Sometimes you need to liven things up. Most importantly, I now had her full attention. How can I explain? I think you have a gift. A beautiful gift. And it can be strengthened by challenging it. I won't lie. It won't always be pleasant. I'm sorry, are you listening to me? Her eyes glazed over. I snapped my fingers. A little reaction. This was the beginning of a new trend in her. As the second personality first started to take root. She seemed to lose either the ability or desire to reach out and communicate, making the task of analysis more challenging. Catatonics are notoriously resistant, although symptoms she started to present were in context more schizoid than catatonic. Maybe this was another reason that I took the risks I eventually did. To put it in less clinical terms, if I was going to unearth the passenger I saw stirring through the portcullis slits of her eyes, I needed to be more provocative. It was quickly becoming apparent that normal approaches wouldn't get us anywhere. I thought I could use her fantasies to revivify my past work. If that hunch was right, no sacrifice was too large. She remained silent. My soliloquizing had lost its audience. I took her hand in mine. Shortly after, I lost my wife and daughter. I realized I was made stronger by this loss. Forged by fire. Invincible, almost. Sure, I could be hurt or killed. It didn't bother me anymore. Only the work mattered. Before I go on, you must fully understand. I have the normal reservations you might imagine about terrorizing a child, especially with the intent of arousing a latent persona that was in contrast both predatory and inhuman. But that is what I spied stirring in those depths. Let me repeat. If I'm right, it's ancient. And if my work with her were merely about aroused curiosity, such moral hesitations would be warranted. It fell on me to bring out the dark heart that beats within us all when hope is vanquished. It's only in hope that we might be treated well that we stay our own hand. Every one of us is monstrous, we're that taken away. As Liliana would soon find out, the pit was in fact a metal cage shaped in such a way that it was impossible to get comfortable. A machine connected to the cages constantly clanked and clanged, making sleep similarly impossible. After just a month of solitary in the pit, most patients were broken down to the most pliant state imaginable. In her already precarious case, this would be too much. I only needed her in there a few days, a week at most. I called for an orderly who promptly strapped her back to a gurney and carted her off to her new home. I visited her one more time that week. She was quiet as I repeated a report of a patient who claimed seeing her many nights before. But of course that's impossible, I went on, because you were locked up here. But this patient said something that got me wondering. You see, I've been concerned at how every test I've run to determine the nature of your abilities has failed. Every single one. So I thought to myself, could it be the equipment? My own failure? It's starting to get to me. I can see you like my failure. I was wondering, what if you were intentionally failing? I let it hang in the air. That would be a mistake, wouldn't it? Because I'm the only one that can make the stop. All they use a knife to think about. Just you and the rats. She stared at me blankly. Look at the time, I said. That's all for today. According to my journal, mere hours before it was time to check on her again, I had a curious dream. 
It's often hard to differentiate between those that are little more than the gurgling and belching of the body, and those that hint at the symbolic forms that lie beyond. This one was significant, beyond doubt. I was on a boat of unfamiliar design. The water that roiled about us was a blue-black, with pearlescent frothy tops as the wind whipped the surface. I saw bodies floating beneath us, several feet beneath the brink. Corpses with vacant, staring eyes. I realized that this was the river left, which corresponds to the forgetfulness of death. At the prow stood two figures, a girl and a far older man, who slumped over a crutch. Though initially shrouded in shadow, they began to glow with an inner light, and I recognized the girl as Liliana. However, she was blind, looking out at the vast river with sightless eyes, much like the bodies that passed us below. She has the vision of death, I thought. The man turned towards me, and asked if I could take his post for a while, for I am old, and the trip is long. He was wearing regal garments, but aged. Christian man, asking me to stand guard against the pagan tide of filth that ever threatened the empire. I obliged him, and without any fanfare, he stepped over the side of the boat to join the legion of the Samoan dead. She grasped my hand, and looked right through me, sightlessly. Be my eyes. See what I see, she said. I awoke with a start, and immediately realized what I must do. For the common good. Following the inspiration granted from the dream, I redoubled my efforts in my once dead research in remote viewing technology. Weeks were spent putting her into hypnotic induction. I designed a prototype that would allow us to see into that world. I would be her eyes. These first induction rooms were humble affairs compared to their children. Staring at flickering images through a head-sized hole in the wall, to which the skull of the patient might be affixed, their ceaseless attention assured by a wire and strap contraption of my own design that might be attached to the eyelids. Nero himself might have been pleased by such a screening venue when first presenting his plays. However, the images that I chose were aimed towards triggering response at a level never dreamed by art. Eight hours of induction makes a waking dream of the rest of your day. October was unusually cold that year, and my radiator was on the fritz. So I remember most of this time through a wall of resentment and numb fingers, although my usual treats made this unpleasantness bearable. I'm a simple creature with simple pleasures, keeping my Ceylon with a little extra honey and laudanum, and an unpleasant day has been cured. This is the trick to a boundlessly healthy disposition. Despite the unusually chilly autumn, the overall dreariness of the weather was normal, constant, and unchanging. It often seemed to me that a rusty wind blew through the interior of America, carrying with it indefatigable steel rain. All of that focused on one point, the asylum, a lonely tower at the heart of it all. Budgeting at this point was stretched to its limit. I had scrimped and adhered to the utmost thriftiness and patient care, so that we might put every penny towards research. But unfortunately, they had to eat at least once a day, or those stone-faced inquisitors of the state might begin to notice. I recall many sleepless nights, every nerve humming with anxiety. Just when failure seemed absolutely imminent, I received a letter from the associate of a distant relative, one Mr. V. Funds were arranged. So it was that we could at last build the sensory deprivation system, and there our first real advances were made. The lines of industry indeed. What was the purpose of such an elaborate contraption, you might ask? Its internal workings would be impossible for the layman to entirely comprehend, but it doesn't make its purpose incoherent. 
As I've already indicated, it is to be her eyes. The see on a screen what is incurring in her mind's eye, as we say. The ultimate goal beyond this purpose has always been to create a device that would use cathode ray technology and radio signals to broadcast the contents of a single mind into every nervous system on the planet. If I was right about her abilities, she could help me make this a reality. There is still a matter of making a subject adequately pliant and focusing and amplifying the image. For Liliana, who'd shown herself surprisingly resistant to torture, I believe my prior failures might be resolved, but needed to perfect my methodology. I couldn't risk killing her, so a ready supply of indigent patients helped us struggle through our labor-intensive task. I had nurse mites strapped into gurneys that were carted over to the wing now entirely dedicated to my secret pet project. I discovered that intracranial pressure relief was indeed possible using a technique known as trepanning. Just a gentle tap-tap of the pick on the right cerebral cranium sinus and the infantile bliss state could again be reached. I found this work strangely soothing. The grinding sensation of skull plate itself was not entirely pleasant, but once you gain access to the soft tissue beneath, I felt that I could almost share in their blessed release. Once the patient's head was set in place with a series of screws, joining metal to the bone, these and other adjustments could be made without risking any accidents. I was nearly ready to work directly on Liliana within a short month, with a loss of only seven patients. Their sacrifice to science was far greater a boon to humanity than they could have possibly otherwise engineered with such limited faculties. Meanwhile, I made arrangements with Mr. V, with the materials and resources called for, and renewed correspondence with luminaries in various fields without giving away my treasure, as it were. The technical specifics of this device cannot be provided until all research and patents have been completed. I'll share what I can. The inspiration for the device began many years ago in a rather trivial place. It's my conviction that when you seek the origins of a great idea, you'll commonly find humble beginnings, so this is little surprise. Around this time, a verbose and altogether misguided attack on Penhurst came to my attention, placed in a journal supported by the Old Guard of Vienna, by a woman journalist, of all things. She had turned from our profession to gossip due to some awakening of the heart. The author stated that our asylum was the embodiment of everything medieval and backwards in the field today. She didn't say it outright, but it was quite clear this attack was personal and directed at me. Everyone could see that. After all, I was in charge of most of the research and care. You might say I poured my very personality into this place. It should have ended with that, but it nodded me. Her words found some tiny corner of doubt that I didn't know existed and there discomfort grew to a fever. How could I stop it? She might have been right, but for the wrong reasons. The issue wasn't cruelty. It was casual acceptance of mediocrity. I had allowed the Viennese Psychoanalytic Society to hold me back for the last time. I repeated the same routine each gray and drizzling day. Arrive at seven, intake, review quality of care issues, stare out over that bleak courtyard. This wasn't science. It was clerical work. My early career suddenly filled me with nausea and vertigo, so profound that I wanted to crawl out of my skin. If I hadn't found a way to approach my work anew, I may have found myself sharing the experience of some of my patients. Those who have not felt the cost of the daily grievances of the touched, nor heard the awful sounds that fill the hospital at night, the dull thudding of a head cast by its own will again and again into blood-drenched tiles will more easily pass judgment. 
The things I've done once wet my cheeks also, and I felt the burden these poor wretches bore doubly, being better graced with the wherewithal to know their depravity. Eventually you must cease childish concerns and be a man. This sad excuse for a scientist and journalist, hardly doctor or analyst, but more critic or academic, knew nothing of the weight I bear every day I pass those gates. I will admit, I cannot soundly judge myself, for my conscience has a thousand several tongues, as Shakespeare said. What does a villain know of their villainy? But still less can a fool judge what I do. All the same, in a way, I owe a great debt to this nameless colleague, because I might have actually relented to mediocrity if not for her article. When we are pushed to a ledge, sometimes we learn to fly. During the development of the saturation chambers, my enthusiasm grew to an almost neurotic level. In retrospect, I wonder if I was reacting to the sting of words that had been tossed carelessly in my direction by a nurse under my charge. She held similar concerns as my so-called colleague. You're just taking out pain on another, pain at the loss of your wife, she had said, as if she could know anything about my life. She had misunderstood a session that she oversaw, caught the photograph at my desk, and fancied herself an analyst. And because of that, she threw her life away. Such a waste. I believe her name was Marguerite Dahl, or maybe it was Michelle. Young, clearly audacious, she was so articulate that her words have stayed with me despite their contemptuous, fictional nature. In other circumstances, I might have wanted her as a protege, or at least a lover. Her actions made that impossible. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me recall the entire incident from the beginning. It was evening, several days before my first real attempt in the saturation chambers. She must have been building up the nerve to speak to me for quite some time, because she barged into my office without so much as a knock, which was atypical behavior for her. Doctor, she called into the gloom, but she couldn't see me. I had been under the desk on all fours, and I quickly sat up and straightened my clothes. Come in, I said, wiping my mouth. She stood firmly and crossed her arms behind her back. I've been watching your conduct with the patients, with Boliana in particular, and I need to understand why you do these things. I'm sorry? What things? I asked, truly uncertain what she was referring to, slightly offended how she said things, but being honest. My work showed the highest commitment to scientific integrity. I often flaunted authority in my different approach, and I admit I was brusque as my interest was really in being part of the front lines of research, not patient care. Sometimes I used playful names for things, like I didn't spare. But all this demonstrated an actual breach of conduct. I believe I explained as much to her before she had a chance to answer my question. You're practicing trepanation with lower-functioning patients. The nurses are practicing, I corrected her. Quite admirably, I might add. You can't defer responsibility. You're the director. We wouldn't want to risk making a mistake on dear Leliana now, would we? I shot back. What's the medical benefit of this nonsense? The chambers and devices being built in gated off sections of the building. What you're doing is torture. A tear actually crept its way down my cheek. I cleared my throat, any sympathy I may have felt melting away. I don't answer to you, miss. There's no need for me to demonstrate the efficacy of my techniques. I don't know what they taught you in nursing school, but you should know that to practice science, you must test the hypothesis critically, skeptically, as if you had no vested interest in the outcome, save getting the truth. The truth is worth any price. But you wring your hands and try to pretend that your Protestant morality is a thing of nature. 
Red in tooth and claw. You hear that? Tennyson, most people think it's Darwin. A crocodile can get away with crushing a gazelle. So it does. It doesn't check with the board to see if it's ethical or not. No, she said, visibly trembling. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Hers was a great mind. I could see this at once. But I could not speak such words about truth and then not follow through. I'm not some mere philosopher. I grabbed her by the wrist, quickly injecting a sedative I prepared during that little speech. It went straight into her blood, and her head bumped to the floor. She never showed to work again. Now which of our trepan patients the following week bore a strange likeness without nurse who disappeared? Marjorie Dahl. Do you think? Such an unfortunate loss. Glimpse of the images inside Liliana's head. Now, Liliana, one of the nurses was saying feebly, there's nothing for you to worry about. We were assailed by more pointless screaming and struggling as Liliana's increasingly gaunt body was carted into the saturation chamber. It couldn't be helped. I had wired the other patient's jaws shut to avoid such unpleasantness, but I needed access to her in her world, so she had to remain able to speak. She fell silent when the chamber came fully into view. It must have seemed to her like a contraption out of a Verne novel, an upended, grounded submarine held together with cast iron bolts, connected to my workstation through a dense network of tubes and wires. The main compartment was brushed bronze, a sort of exoskeleton that I had crafted myself, adorned with vacuum tubes that looked like oversized light bulbs that would never turn on. But the rest of the device was covered with pulsing light, on the exterior, signaling the health of the signal paths and on the interior, providing augmented hypnotic induction. In the center of my workstation stood a simple screen that was, in truth, the heart of the Enterprise. I stood before her, eagerly tapping my clipboard. When she saw my grin, she got the hollering again. Please, I said, affecting as much kindness as the doctor could allow. Relax, my girl. Have a little appreciation for all the work we've done here. This won't hurt much. I didn't want to lie to her. There's no doubt the initial procedures would cause some moderate discomfort. As we administered her morphine, she went dead calm. Now there was something sinister to her silence. That other seemed to radiate out from her features. Spiteful, ancient, powerful. This was the visit I glimpsed during her intake. Another self, growing stronger the more we pushed her. A thing born not from above, but rather below, a demon straight from the pit of some prehistoric subconscious, was looking me dead in the eyes. I had made contact. My look struck with such force that it fractured my molars. They clattered and danced until finally crawling down my throat and up my spine. My entire universe burst into rapturous flame. I broke her gaze, pulled on my gloves and put on the goggles. We aren't trying to imprison your mind, we're trying to free it. 
I froze, realizing I was reacting to words she'd planted in my head. But just as soon as she'd appeared, Lilith left Oliana alone with me. She started to whimper and plead for my help. Some part of her still saw me as a paternal figure. I'm not going anywhere, I told her, taking her hand. I motioned to Nurse Smythe, who grimaced as she carted Liliana into the chamber, and began the next round of injections. She was always such a soft touch, but I understood her trepidation. After all, I couldn't explain the grave importance of this work, not to her, not to anybody. Her eyelids fluttered. Nurse Smythe held her hand more firmly. Now let me explain it to you. The nurse is going to wire your skull to this bar here, so you don't whip your head around. We need to put this in your mouth so you don't bite off your tongue. Then we're going to insert... These conductive spikes into your nervous system, and what do you care for details? This is going to be fun. I nodded at the nurse. We muzzled her, and then held her head as we screwed the armature in place. I leaned over and put Beethoven's Hammerclavier Sonata on the phonograph as she screamed into the chalky rubber. It was one of my favorite pieces of music, marking a major transition into his later and most genius compositions. Literally, the hammer keyboard, a fitting choice considering what I was about to do. And this day, too, will go down in the handles of history as a great transition. Almost as if on cue, rain began pouring on our endeavors, visible through a single barred window. At first a trickle, quickly a river, pouring from the sky, a symphony in the heavens, and I was the composer. The river of forgetfulness. This is the day of your transformation. Let me be your eyes, I said aloud. As the music moved into the scherzo, the screen hummed and let out a loud ping as the first electrons pummeled the display device. An angry dot buzzed and bounced. Then two, then three and four. Soon an army of them roved across the screen like a swarm of bees. The most chaotic pattern formed of radio wave flickers from distant spiral nebulae. A more earthly image formed. Lilith, seated on a throne made of bones, with two cats. One black and one white on her lap. She proceeded to instruct them in the proper manner of washing themselves, or so it seemed to me at the time. A short time later, she caught her reflection in the mirror opposite her position, and it seemed that she saw something unnatural in that reflection. The mirror itself, its naked appearance, was very familiar to me. Although I didn't yet have time to reflect on its importance in this projected vision, Transfixed, she approached it timidly, and then, with much more bravado, stuck her hand straight through its surface. Rather than shattering glass and bruising on the wall, her grasp instead seemed to find air beyond. She jumped through, body and all, when a screen went black. No static. Nothing but a rapidly cooling white dot in the center of the blank screen. In fact, the entire power grid seemed compromised. Lights flickered, and then, one after the other, fractured and split in their shells like popcorn. Glass rained down on the floor, and we were left in utter darkness. I heard shrieking in the halls, patients or orderlies, I couldn't tell which, and then the sound of screws turning, as if under their own volition. A flash of lightning lit the room for a moment, and I saw Lilith in her true aspect, naked and terrifying. Then again we were in darkness, I reached blindly for the sedative, and managed to find my way to a vein. More howls in the hallway, a crunch followed by a wet hiss, and then nothing. 
It wasn't long before Nurse Smythe found the lantern, and we got the power working again. What we discovered was worse than nightmares, and yet also truly astonishing. Awesome, even. Several of the orderlies have been gutted right there in the room beside us, the way a hunter might feel dressed a deer. None of them were alive to tell the tale of their sudden end. Nurse Smythe was pale and shaking. I put my hand on her shoulder, but she shoved it off. We need to stop this, she said. I shook my head. They mustn't die in vain, I said feebly. She looked shocked I'd even made the attempt, and repeated herself. We need to stop this. I conceded her point. I suppose it's time that I share what's at stake with you. You deserve it. I led her down the hallway to my study and pulled out the file I've been keeping on Lilith. She flipped through its already yellowed pages. They smelled of mothballs and mildew, paper glue and blood. So did the rest of this place. I don't understand most of it. Half the pages are covered with strange glyphs and diagrams. Please explain to me. We at least need a fallback. I won't budge on that, she said, edge of finality in her voice. A failsafe, yes. I'm already on it. You know the storage cellar? Yes, he said, clearly not following. I've invested considerable resources and manpower. Resources? From where? Let me worry about that. The point is, if this gets out of control, I have a vault, a veritable labyrinth to drop our little monster into, I said. Then came a time where I had to explain why. Why this was so crucially important, not just for me, but for all mankind. I don't remember the exact words I used. Suffice to say, I'm no sadist. I comforted myself with the knowledge that an analyst may see thousands of patients in a full career. It might help a third of them find some measure of peace. Imagine a device that could reach the millions of undiagnosed neurotics that slump and slouch their way through a semi-crippled existence. The device could not only reach them, but also coax them into an alpha wave trance that would make them comfortably suggestible to our expert manipulations. This is what was at stake. The soul of a single girl held against the sum of humanity's future well-being. What would you have done? Don't be so quick to deal out judgment with your heart against that which you haven't been able to grasp with your mind. The sky was the pre-dawn hue of an opium vision. 
I lit a candle and captured what I could. Blindfolded Lilith, with her tumbling spun copper hair, guided me Wittershins through a vast labyrinth, a maze of lichen-encrusted stone. She was sightless, but somehow she knew her way, as if following an unending length of yarn, her deft fingers soft and pink as a newborn. I sensed we were approaching the hearthstone. Everything opened to the sky and the gate of a tower, adorned with strange patterns and architecture. Magyar, Ottoman, Moravian. These are the people of my wife's ancestry. And here I found that mirror again. I recalled that one of my staff had hung it in my office, not knowing I'd taken it down upon my wife's death. Not wanting to call attention to my reason, I left it in place, but had so acquired the habit of not looking at it that I'd forgotten it was there. For the time being, I returned to less invasive means of exploring her inner world, at least until I could be sure she wouldn't slaughter the rest of my staff. A hypnosis session two weeks after the incident comes to mind. I had her sit facing herself in the mirror, which I left in place as an act of fate. Instead of speaking to me, I would have her speak to herself, in the hopes of bringing out that other I had spotted many times by that point. My thinking was that perhaps a physical mirror could evoke some sort of occult power over her latent projections. As I mentioned previously, the object itself, an ornate mirror, several feet on a side made of perfectly polished silver, had been a gift from my late wife. When I first discovered it, hidden under a blanket at the back of the attic, I was overcome with a sudden memory as I wiped off the layers of dust, as if I were removing dust from the memory itself. My wife was again standing beside me, laughter in her eyes, asking if I liked the present. There was a touch of playful malice in that laugh, however, but she knew full well how I felt about unnecessary decoration. It had been in her family for generations, she said. I thought it was somewhat monstrous, a testament to Viennese over-embellishment that was so common before the collapse of the empire. But what I said to her was, it's perfect. And I meant that, too. Her smile was the only joy I'd ever known. Here it was again, coming out of its long slumber to hang on the wall and help me find the truth buried inside this tormented girl's mind. I had Liliana strapped to a wheelchair that Nurse Smythe carted into the room. She cast me a somewhat suspicious look before I waved her off. Today, we're going to do something different. I would like you to look at your reflection in the mirror. Look into your eyes. Breathe in and out. In and out. Now. I want you to think of that mirror you stepped through. When we were in the East Wing, do you remember? We were seated on a chair with two cats. She nodded her head. I set a metronome device on the table beside her, as the regular sound would assist in accessing the theta brain state necessary for hypnagogic revelation. Now look closer at the face you see in the mirror. See through those eyes. They're not your eyes. The face you see before you is not your face. Do you understand? She has stolen your features. She has stolen your thoughts. Give yourself wholly to her impulses. Without warning, I slapped her across the face. Her reflection in the mirror locked gazes with me. 
However, her body seemed little more than a discarded marionette, sightlessly staring off into space. A tingle ran through my fingers, like the faintest electric current. She slithered around inside my head, and spoke through the looking glass as her reflection regarded me. Do you still hear them? Roasting? In the fire? I smelled lamb, caramelized and crackling. I imagined it charred on the outside, still juicy on the inside. I felt shamefully hungry. What? I gasped. I looked back at Liliana's limp body in the room. Eyes, thin and knotted sunk, hair like straw. Was she even breathing? Two infernal eyes twinkled back, framed in black. To my horror, I saw she was wreathed in flame. She didn't speak, but the words formed in my mind all the same. Close your eyes, Doctor. I remember you will always see your wife and daughter. So close, and yet did nothing. After the screaming stopped, they were, after all, nothing but me. Let's watch them die again. Every muscle in my body snapped taut. I saw red. The thrumming in my ears was a war drum. In that instant, I would do anything to make the voices stop. That isn't what happened! I yelled at the empty air. I felt thick wetness oozing between my fingers. I looked down and saw that I stabbed Liliana's hand with an awl so deeply that she was crucified to the chair. But she didn't react, and Lilith just laughed, her teeth in the mirror surprisingly pearly clean. I admit it. I lost composure. Who wouldn't have? But it is the truth, she said, still inside the mirror, or in my mind. I couldn't tell which. How could she use her eyes like razors, carve out and replace our memories with them? A little smoke, a little flame. You could have saved them. The laughter grew louder in my head as I screamed for Nurse Knight. Lilith's blood-red mouth seemed to grow wider and larger than was humanly possible, and my mind was engulfed by her tongue, down that soft gullet. Freud often wrote of cleavages of consciousness that could allow for such compartmentalization. I had always remained skeptical. Here it was, staring into the yawning mouth of madness, now suddenly cast backwards in time. When I had asked my wife about the mirror, she said it was a family heirloom, nothing more. And that's what I commonly remember when I think of it. But there was more, something of this awful trauma set loose. When I pushed my way further, to see if there was after all any hope in arguing for its removal, she recounted a story that I discounted then as superstition. Back in the olden times, she began, as if telling a nighttime story to her daughter, there was a rebellious spirit who took the desert because she refused to abide by the laws laid down by man. This spirit was a master of deception, and it was said she could cast any appearance upon the things around her. In her wanderings, she came to love a man who was married. She tried to leave it alone, but she found that nothing any longer gave her joy, save the hope of possessing him utterly. His human wife was, in fact, large with child, and the spirit spent countless nights perched on the windowsill, wishing all manner of evil on this woman and her child. When the child was born, it was misshapen and deformed. Yet the man loved this little scalp piglet. His wife wept nightly at her misfortune. One evening, while sobbing and staring into the depths of the mirror, while in her bedchamber, she finally spied the spirit that had long haunted them. You are now my reflection, she said to the spirit. 
but something far more beautiful. And the woman felt envy flare in her heart. With this, the spirit was able to strike a deal and come to possess her body so that both could have what they wanted. The first of the fallen, she called herself, and maybe she was. She's known as Lilith. There's a tradition, my wife told me, that when there's a death, you must cover all the mirrors in the home. During the Sheba ceremony, this is particularly important, as evil spirits will otherwise try to enter in. As you may have gathered, my wife was a Viennese Jew, from a long line of bohemians and exiles. Poor but dignified, articulate. They associated more closely in past generations with the Romani, only leaving the wandering lifestyle behind in my wife's generation. With them came this cursed and possibly ungainly mirror. What of this mirror? I had asked. My great-grandmother many times removed, Verushka, she explained, was accused of witchcraft. This was sometime in the 1600s, part of the Moravian witch trials. Overall, these accusations were becoming less frequent. They still had some weight to them. The truth was, she wasn't much liked outside her community. And I think that, regardless, they were part right for once. She practiced Kabbalistic and Solomonic magic. She was clearly no rabbi. That could never be. She was close with Christoph Winter, the rebel leader. Protestants hated her, and she broke the rules of her own community. In those times, what happened was inevitable. She was to burn at the stake. Baruska had many spies. She instructed her family to leave this mirror uncovered for the seven days following Hiroshima. And with that, before anyone could take her to capture and torture, she said a quick prayer to Lilith and slid her wrist above the glass. And it how do I say? It drank her all the way past the veil, capturing the dying light in her eyes. And you want to keep this morbid thing in our house? I'd asked, honestly incredulous. You might say the mirror reflects not just physical light, but also that of the spirit. In a home lit with joy and kindness, these things are doubly manifest. Given over to a psyche twisted in a revenge, the mirror is refuge, but also trap. I relented. I don't understand this nonsense. If you truly want it lurking there in plain sight, menacing our dinner guests, who am I to stop you? The sound of her voice, even in my memory, had a dramatic effect on me. It was as if an immense dark room was suddenly bathed in light. The light is necessary to give presence to the scope of absence. After all, a dark closet is not so different in appearance from the Bannon Amphitheater. In this dusty, derelict place, I found numerous trinkets, scattered memories, all worthless in their isolated nakedness, but in chorus, the extent of my loss could suddenly become aware of itself. Indeed, this sorrow was not singular. There hunched my dear mother, dead after long illness, stripped away from me, a cell at a time, like silver nitrate film developing in reverse. All the details blur and fade until you're left with a wizened infant, consuming what you managed to spoon feed it with one end and found diapers on the other. None of the vibrant woman I'd known. The great round of life seemed a hollow joke when she was taken. That joke repeated again when I saw that a mother, a daughter, a wife were mere things woven of sinew and bone. All these women had, despite their sincerity, ultimately left me in the dark. And only through that estrangement and exile had I become a man, as with Adam and God. I blinked and took a step away. 
I was allowing this cornhusk scarecrow to frighten me with superstitious memories and parlor tricks. Get out of my mind, I yelled. The only face that reflected back was my own. I staggered into the hall and collapsed. Some latent ritual, buried since childhood, struggled through the underbrush and found its way to the light. My hands rested against one another, and words started to tumble from my lips. Our Father, who art in heaven. But there they stuck and caught, like a fishbone formed of reason. I couldn't finish. It was all a lie. What had she ever done except love? And I repaid it with... At night, I laid like a corpse on a slab, but without the restful sleep of the silent dead. Normally I'd be unconscious the moment I set myself down. It was the damn memories that both had pried loose. I didn't like admitting to myself that patients could have such an effect. The truth is, it's often a two-way process. When a patient could sneak in through the eyes and ears, massage spiteful coils around your mind, even memories of your dear mother become unsafe. I let my mind wander as I might when beginning analysis on another. My family first came to the States from Europe. Before that point, I had only other people's stories. I was just a boy. Mother looked so hopeful. It seemed immortal to me then. It was only a few years before it all changed. I could hear her arguing with my father, her room over. The sound of their voice mingled and boomed through the thin walls. Of course, I have sister and I heard some of the harsh words, though at first I thought it was only the most recent installment in the ongoing debate about synagogue or chapel. But then I listened closer, and four little words sucked the air out of my lungs. Tell them I'm dying. Dying? I'd honestly never considered the possibility. My mother quickly won the debate. She was a proud horse, my father used to say. But her secret was already out. I remember the moment, the whole day, with absolute clarity. I looked at my sister as she spoke those words to us officially, and I saw tears welling in her eyes. I am dying. I wondered if it was my fault, a punishment for something I'd done earlier. Later that night, I sneaked into my sister's closet and waited with the lights out. As I'd suspected, She'd been allowing a boy from choir to enter in secret. Nothing superstitiously sinful about it, just common, petty, coarse, like animals eating at a trough, dribbling slop everywhere, while my mother was dying in the other room. At the time, I retained mother's religion. I saw siding with her in their brushfire conflict as a tacit spiritual bond between her and I. The image of Jesus' virginal mother clasping his body as immortalized by Michelangelo and so many other painters comes to mind, but it was always the Michelangelo that burst forth in all my thoughts of God, no period Teutonic Lord. And of course, the face that appeared beneath the halo was my mother's, beatific, but sorrowful, enigmatic, but brave. When the choir boy finished his monotone groans, he got up from the floor and fled like a thief in the night. Her face was hidden from my view, but I felt a certain perspiration in the air, a mournful heaviness. Then she began to weep, a helpless, inexhaustible weeping that I could not understand. An overwhelming feeling of revulsion and fascination overtook me. The next day was Sunday, and we went to Mass as if nothing were the matter. 
When I prayed, I repeated my wish, now to God, that he might take my sister in exchange for my mother. Then the most awful thing happened, as my body committed a betrayal of its own. My eyes happened to be resting upon the body of a girl in the choir, as I had these furtive thoughts. At first I merely noticed her long reddish blonde hair, eyes cast upwards in rapturous devotion, but the devoted eyes turned menacing, the mouth opened joyfully in song, devouring. She held me down with a terrible strength. In confession, I said only so much as was necessary. But then the priest said something to me through the mahogany slats that relieved me immensely. Poor child. It was good of you to tell me, but it isn't your fault. These are the terrors that women inflict on us. Those unfit vessels who were like Lilith, who would not lay down and raise children for her husband following God's commandments, as Eve did. That had been the first I ever heard of Lilith. I felt like an audible click, as if someone had cracked my neck. I felt restful and thought, now I can sleep. No more of this childish nonsense. The next day, I agreed to share my evening tea with Nurse Smythe, at her request. This is getting out of control, she said, again. Well, it's true. I know you're an administrator, but you've lost perspective. Please, she said. I shook my head, counted out 15 droplets of laudanum. We're so close to a breakthrough. I can feel it. She sighed and went back in her chair. What if it happens again? What then? We'll use more security measures. We'll put her under more sedation, I said. Then I added, Also, you'll be happy to know the vault is nearly complete when it comes to that. And how I sorely wished it wouldn't, I thought, suddenly realizing that Liliana looked a great deal like my sister did back then. That's not right. My eyes drifted over an old photograph of my mother and I, and froze in a family portrait that sat on the little mahogany table beside my smoking chair. These were the only decorations that were allowed to mar the professionalism of my office. But, but my wife's face was scratched off entirely, as if with a rusty nail, and my daughter no longer looked like the face I remember. I grabbed it with a visibly shaking hand. Nurse Smythe, what do you see in this photograph? I asked, pointing towards it. Your family. Nothing is out of the ordinary. No, as it's always been. Are you all right, doctor? Yes, I'm fine, I said. I just need some rest is all. My head buzzed. Everything seemed to fall out of focus. I was with my family again. We were in the house I'd built, near the fireplace. My daughter was playing with toys we had purchased at the market. My wife was reading something in the long back chair near the fire. Maybe by Tolstoy, I think. She had a fascination with Russian authors that I could never understand. I felt that if I scooped them up, I'd be bathed in pure joy, a spark that gives birth to boundless radiance. Barajmos, as my wife might say, ripped out of my life, leaving a hole behind. Sparks from the fire, first catching the armchair, then spreading faster than thought to the carpet. I staggered backwards, choking from the smoke, and saw that all the family paintings have the face of our gifted imposter. She smirked as my family burned alive. I pushed through a chrysalis of sweat and fear paralysis and found my way to standing, barely feeling the icy cold of the stone floor in early morning. The patients weren't awake. The late night shift was at the end of their rounds, plotting their paces with grudging reservation. 
I headed straight to the pit, and carted a still-sleeping Liliana towards the saturation chambers. This had gone on far enough. Nurse Smythe was surprisingly still awake after the laudanum, and followed behind. I ignored her admonishment and curses all the way to the chamber. Either get out, or help me, I growled at her. Christ's sake, she said. Get some guards down here. Fine. It'll take a few minutes to set up the device, anyway. Call them, and then help me wire her in. Lilith had proven a greater challenge than I expected. The nurse's hands set to work as I inspected the device, various cutting implements, and finally the drill. I explained my methodology aloud to my captive audience, mostly to pass time as it was complicated equipment and sitting in place was tedious work. Liliana awoke with a throat-churning howl. I shoved the gag in her mouth. This wasn't about her. I wanted to face to face with whatever lurked inside the cracked shell of her body. I flipped the switches on the walls. Her eyes rolled around in her head like the pictures in a coin slot lotto machine. I could feel her all around us now. An undeniable presence permeating the air. In those eyes I saw fire. I saw death. No longer the little girl that had darkened my office once before, wanting nothing more than to disappear and live out a quiet life in peace. Something else now entirely sat in her place. She was never coming back. Her inward reverie was a weapon, a hot glare of shard of glass. And with it, she could carve through lesser minds. My staff? The nurses? Doctor! Her smite screamed. I already knew what she was thinking. The vault. The workers that built it. Dead. Patients that helped me perfect my techniques. Butchered. She had to be stopped. And in such a way that she didn't bring Penhurst down around her. The screaming went on for a surprisingly long time. I could hear the now familiar crackle of fire feasting on their flesh. An eternity of nanoseconds lingered between each hell, each flash of light crunch that bespoke the end of another life. I lost myself in these eternities, expecting my own end amidst them. I was suddenly reminded of our sessions in front of the mirror, and my musings about its role was a crossroads, a door between worlds. I'd said it, but didn't fully understand at the time. The mirror, she had to go back to where she came from. I charged down the hallway, my lab coat fluttering behind me, a white flag telegraphing bloody defeat. She had to go back to where she came from. Flames danced all around us, consuming flesh and bone. The mirror, I panted, only a few more steps. She crossed the bend in the hall behind me, then she met her own gaze. Two dull eyes set off as it were in charcoal and soot. Enshrined in tendrils of smoke and flame that seemed to merely tickle at her goose flesh. Meanwhile, when we got too near, we turned to human torches. Another eternity of flame and darkness dipped and wheeled around us. I recalled the tale my wife had told of the mirror. And now, something else. The underworld, she once said, was a Sartrean solipsistic nightmare. An entire universe kept aflame by a single candle. If the folktale had any truth to it, the mirror was like a doorway, a million doors perhaps, all leading to the same destination. Many entrances, no exits. I waited for death, but it didn't come. Lilith remained locked in the grips of her own gaze, transfixed. What horror did she spy in her reflection that paralyzed her, like Medusa in Perseus' shining shield? 
I'll never know. The fires around her choked and sputtered, leaving a cacophony of braying from the burn. There was no time to spare. Nurse Smythe, who somehow escaped the worst of it save singed eyebrows, appeared from the gloom, and we wordlessly carted Lilith away. I finally had no argument. There she was left to rot, along with my own dreams for immortality. For a long time after, I imagined I could still feel her presence in the autumn chill. Fear, I hear her in the pipes and vents that connect the halls of the building she tried to burn to the ground, with all of us still inside. There her bones must lay several stories down. Hush whispers still speak of her lingering influence. We all know it is impossible. The great work must continue. But how? Under lock and key. You may wonder, after hearing all the risks we took, and with the lives lost, if I have regrets. Well, I'd like to say something like, regret is for lesser men, men who aren't risking all for the sake of all humankind. How could I know that the record would be expunged and the building would come to be constructed in the same place? The same story might play itself out again and again. But I'm dying, so I have no reason to defend myself. I have one regret, though, or at least I recognize a mistake that I made. A mirror is not merely a device. It's, it's consciousness itself. Consciousness is a mirror. The same propensity to inflict our past upon one another eats in all of our hearts. Our lives are not our own. Only those who have lost everything and endured can understand what this means. If you liked what you heard, you can find more at the Fallen Cycle Bandcamp at fallencycle.bandcamp.com or P. Emerson Williams Panic Machine at digital.panicmachine.com or Johan S.'s Bandcamp at johan-s.bandcamp.com. I'll make sure to put the links in the show notes. Special thanks for providing synth elements as well as audio mastering to Johan S. And as always... Thank you for listening.
for this item, namely the apocalyptic vision of a criminally insane charismatic cult leader who was hell-bent on bringing about 